der Triathlon Show 329. What's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview Dr. Bruce Rogers. Bruce has done a lot of research on assessing the aerobic threshold or first lactate or ventilator threshold, whatever you want to call it, by using the HRV-based marker DFA-alpha-1, which can be measured non-invasively and for free or very cheaply. Uh, and uh, so this is a, an exciting potential method for assessing that first threshold, which can be important to inform training decisions and, and training for training monitoring. So we will discuss this research and the applications of it in the interview with Bruce. But before that, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration. Precision Fuel and Hydration have a range of tools and products to help you personalize your fueling and hydration strategy so that you can perform at your best. Everyone sweats differently, both in terms of sweat rate and sweat sodium concentration, so hydration strategies should be individualized. And fueling strategies will also need to be adapted based primarily on the duration and intensity of exercise or competition, as well as on the athlete's ability to tolerate certain amounts and types of fuel. You can use the free online sweat test and quick carb calculator on precisionfuelandhydration.com to understand your fluid, electrolyte, and carbohydrate needs during training and racing. You can also book a free one-on-one video consultation with the team to refine your strategy. As a listener of the podcast, you can get 15% off your first order of fueling and hydration products by using the code TTS22 at checkout on precisionfuelandhydration.com. And thank you to Roka. Roka produces exceptional quality triathlon wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, performance sunglasses, as well as prescription eyeglasses and sunglasses. Today, I want to highlight Roka's range of eyewear. All of Roka's eyeglasses and sunglasses come with Geeko anti-slip technology so they can never fall off your face. They are extremely lightweight and have unbelievable optics. The performance sunglasses are developed for and tested in up to the most challenging conditions and used in sports from triathlon through speed skating to outdoor and adventure activities. For prescription glasses, there is also a home tryout program, and you can renew your prescription with a simple online vision test at home in front of your computer. All products have multiple options for frame and lens, and they all come with a two-year warranty. My personal favorites are the Rory prescription glasses, the Phantom Aviator sunglasses, and the Matador and Matador Air performance sunglasses for sports. Visit roca.com forward slash TTS for 20% off your entire Roca order. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Dr. Bruce Rogers. Welcome to that Draftful Show, Bruce. How are you doing? I am good, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's a great pleasure. Uh, let's start by, uh, if you can give us uh, a bit of a bigger introduction into your background and uh, what your background is in endurance sports and, uh, and, and in academia as well. Uh, yeah, I'm a, a double-boarded uh, medical doctor uh, in endocrinology and internal medicine, and I became interested in exercise physiology a couple of decades ago, and uh, kind of one thing led to another, and I teamed up with Thomas Grunwald a few years ago um, after uh, he published some very interesting data on DFA-alpha-1, which is a nonlinear uh heart rate variability index, a fractal correlation properties, and uh, used an intensity distribution. And one thing led to another, and 
um, we'll be talking about all the uh, information that has been yielded since. But uh, essentially, I'm I'm a clinician, uh, teacher of other physicians, and uh, this has become kind of a second career for me. Yeah, no, I, I, that's that's what I gathered as well, and it's it's really interesting that uh, sort of career trajectory from from medical background and, and but also now really into the sports science and and you've been quite prolific in the last couple of years with publications which which we'll get into as well so so you mentioned already the the great topic for today uh dfa alpha one uh detrended we'll try to get it right detrended fluctuation analysis uh and so is, is the what dfa is shorthand for can you just tell us what what is that yes um all right. Uh, you know, you've already had uh, some information on heart rate variability, and it's basically the, quote, variability of the beat-to-beat pattern. Um, alpha-1 is a little bit beyond that. It's not only variability, but it's looking at correlation uh, of, of the beat-to-beat sequence. So if it, it's looking for patterns, and let's say you were a person and you had the choice of walking left or right. If that choice was predicated on your pattern of the last three or four steps, that's called correlated behavior. If your next step has nothing to do with those previous steps, um, it's totally random. That's a DFA alpha uncorrelated value of 0.5. So we have correlated patterns where there's actually order to the pattern of the heart rate, or I should say the RR interval, the beat-to-beat pattern. And then we have uh, an uncorrelated pattern that generally occurs right around the FTP, the second uh, threshold, the anaerobic threshold. And beyond that, it becomes what's called anti-correlated, which means those patterns always try to get back to the midline. So if you had a step pattern that was gradually moving away from the midline. Um, once you get past the uh, below the 0.5, you're moving back towards the midline. It's kind of a self-regulation pattern. And I don't want to get too mathematical and too complicated, but let's just say that these patterns um, appear pretty predictably in people at given intensities. So a pattern in you um, of, let's say, 0.75, represents the same intensity as a pattern in me or somebody else who's 20 years older than you and 20 years younger than me. So uh, these patterns are dimensionless numbers, and that's why they are so attractive. We don't need to do any comparative ramping. Uh, Even though we do ramps, we don't need to compare that to gas exchange or lactate unless we're trying to validate. Yeah, so uh, let's let's try to to break it down in one step at a time here. So you mentioned first heart rate variability, and, and as you said, we have talked about that recently on the podcast. Mark Beltini was on to discuss that. And uh, just a reminder for the listeners: that's as you mentioned, Bruce, the the variability in the beat to beat, uh, the beat to beat time variability from in in the heartbeat sequence. But what we're talking about here with alpha one or DFA alpha one is whether there is a pattern to that variability itself. So you can have a high variability, but there's still a pattern to that. And then you have the correlated behavior that you mentioned. 
but you can right. also have no pattern to it that anti-correlated behavior so whether the variability itself is low or high so so for low or high heart variability you can still have uh, a correlated or anti-correlated alpha one so so it's important to not confuse those two terms because they are different different indices of heart rate variability exactly and 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 the again one of the more attractive properties of alpha one is its dynamic range uh with if we look at conventional heart rate variability index uh some simple things like rmssd or sdnn which you know you guys have gone over uh those are just simple mathematical you know equations standard deviation uh root mean square uh and and they they hit a nadir a minimum value right around at the aerobic threshold be if you have intensity beyond the aerobic threshold which is you know a relatively low intensity that's the talk test but if you go beyond that there's no further information to be gained by looking at conventional indexes however with alpha 1 the middle of the dynamic range of alpha 1 is at the aerobic threshold that's the point 75 so once you get past the aerobic threshold we still have plenty of meat in 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 that heart rate variability index in the alpha 1 to give us information on your intensity um and and such so that that is one of the again at the advantages of the alpha 1 right so uh, let's uh, discuss now uh, before your group started doing work with alpha 1 and how that can be used to assess uh, your thresholds uh and be used as a marker of thresholds Uh, what was done before? Because uh, I gathered that there was there had been some previous attempts at using different heart rate variability metrics and indices to to do that, but maybe not quite successful. Yes, uh, you know, actually quite a bit uh, in the early uh, part, about twenty years ago, early part of the century. Uh, yeah, uh, they were using SDNN. They were using uh, the, again where the variability became minimal. um would be the aerobic threshold but that kind of you know kind of lost a lot of attraction because again you didn't have any information past that point also you needed to do a ramp to failure because you had to demonstrate a nadir a minimum value so you couldn't do like kind of a half ramp where your sdnn let's say was dropping and it, it looked like it was flattening out and and let's say you stopped no oh, yeah you, you actually had to keep going to just about failure because you didn't know if it would drop any further past that point. Uh so again there were uh, uh there were many studies on using conventional indexes but again it fell out of favor you needed a ramp to failure. Mm. Yeah and and the difference now then if we go into the the work that you've been doing with DFA alpha 1 Um yeah so so what what is it that you have done with that and, and how is that different from what was done in the past Well uh yeah when uh again we weren't the first ones to look at alpha 1 and intensity of exercise that's been looked at again for 20 years with plenty of studies and it there were again uh, many good reviews on this that uh as intensity rose the alpha 1 would drop And if you look at look back at some of those old studies, there are clues there that around the aerobic threshold, the value was about 0.75. Um, if you look at some of the older studies, they never 
um, went out of their way to say, okay, let's let's see if this thing is valid as a threshold marker. That was never done. And that's kind of how we approached it. Our kind of unique idea is, can we use this as an actual threshold marker with, again, dimensionless number? Uh, you don't need to do any calibration to a gas exchange or a lactate. Now, again, in validation, we do. But if you want to you know, jump on your bike and go out there and, and do a ramp or do some constant uh, intervals and kind of work out what your power is at an alpha one of 0.75, you're going to be awfully close to your aer- aerobic threshold most of the time. Yeah. So, so what are the protocols then if we, or let, no, let's, let's start here. The, from the validation studies you've done, in yes. what sort of populations have you done them in and what modalities in terms of sports? First validation study we did, uh, we used ECG data, very clean ECG data with literally zero artifact. The only artifacts were any type of atrial premature beat or something like that. Very clean data in runners. And we found excellent agreement with the 0.75. And actually, we used that same population for the second threshold, the anaerobic threshold, with the 0.5. Again, ECG data. Uh, The second validation study we did was in a totally opposite uh, population, and that's a cardiac disease group, people with heart failure and coronary disease. And that was also an ECG study, all right? It was not a chest belt. They used ECG. And we, f- we found good correlation, good, uh, good agreement with the 0.75. We did not look at the second threshold in that population uh, simply because we actually did that study before we did the second threshold study. Uh, the third uh, validation study we did um, was uh, that just came out a, a week or two ago in elite triathletes. Uh, one of the national teams in Europe had a training camp, and we simply took their data. We didn't um, it, it, it dictate a protocol to them. They did their lactate threshold studies, their type of ramp, which was a stage test on a uh, on a special type of bike. Um, and we took their data and we found good agreement with the 0.75 and the lactate threshold as determined by a log-log relationship. One of the problems with lactate as opposed to gas exchange is there's a plethora of different concepts of what constitutes the first threshold and what constitutes the second threshold. And you know, we could have a discussion literally for six hours and argue back and forth, which is better, which isn't. And that's the problem with lactate, how to interpret the numbers. But what I'll tell you is that whether it's two millimolar or log log, it's going to be close to 0.75. There was another um, uh, validation study. It wasn't really a validation study. They didn't look for that. This came out about a year ago. And what they did was a five-minute interval analysis um, at a running pace of the first ventilatory threshold and the second ventilatory threshold. And they just wanted to see what alpha one was in a group of runners when they were running at the first threshold and running at the second threshold. And guess what? 0.75 and it was something like 0.49 or something like that. So again, very, very close to our data. So that's four validation studies right there. Uh, I just saw on Twitter this morning that a group from, I, I believe, Spain 
came out with another validation study using lactate markers. And again, I, I, all I did was I saw the, the post, uh, but they apparently got very close agreement with the first and second lactate threshold, whatever they picked. I don't know what they picked, but whatever lactate threshold they picked, they got good agreement with the 75 and the 0.5 alpha-1. So that's now five different validation studies. And that's pretty darn good. Um, we could talk a little later why you may not get agreement um, if you did it or somebody else did it. But right now we have, we're five and oh, as far as validation studies. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I, I saw the same tweet uh, just before getting on this interview and it was, um, I think, Shana uh, Holes is his name, uh, if I pronounce that correctly. Um, so if listeners want to go and have a look at that, by the time this interview is released, uh, there might be some preprints already out, potentially. We'll see. Uh, either way, I think, yeah, there's plenty of, of things to dig into there. The first thing that comes to mind for me, and which also kind of stood out when I was looking through your publications, is that we, we are talking about either uh, using, like these validation studies have been done using an incremental test with a metabolic card or as a lactate ramp test, and but then also this other study you mentioned with five minutes at the first and five minutes at the second threshold, which I, I hadn't seen. But but my point here is that we have the validation has been done using specific protocols. And when I first started hearing about uh, alpha one, that was something that wasn't clear to me. Like I thought the whole idea was that you could go out and run, and whenever you ended up below 0.75, you were above your threshold and, and vice versa. And that's maybe not the case because you, you still need to have the context of, okay, how was this validation done? It was using specific protocols. So so can we talk about the protocols used and what that means in terms of applicability in training? Do, basically, do you recommend that people should do an incremental test or a ramp test to simulate what was done in the research to find their thresholds in a non-invasive and basically free way without paying for a lab test. Is, is that what, what is your recommendation in practical terms? I, I think there are, there are many uh, points to your question uh, you know, that you just asked. Yeah, sorry. And, yeah, no, that's okay. Um, and I'm going to divide it on two things. And maybe we'll talk about one now and, and one later. The first part was the mechanics of us going out and actually doing the run, doing the cycle, whatever we do as far as how do we modulate our intensity to achieve the best ramp or the most accurate threshold. So that, that's one part. The other part is, and, and I think the second part is the more important part, how do we make sure we're getting precise, not necessarily accurate, but, but precise agree, agreement values to what we achieved and what others achieved in the literature. And, and that is actually a bigger question than the first. Now, uh, you, you made a, 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 let's go back to the first for a sec. You know, what, what kind of ramp do you do? Uh, can you just go out and do a mixed ride or a mixed bunch of running? That actually could work. Uh, we've actually, we've, we've examined that. Um, I informally, again, we, we didn't have a lot of data, um, uh, my my partner Thomas Grunwald had some old stuff from a few years ago that he got from some soccer players, and um, you know just running around during a soccer match 
And we looked at DFA Alpha as they were running around up and down the field, up and down the field. And although they didn't do a ramp, you actually could plot out their Alpha 1 versus heart rate. And you can get a relationship. And I suspect that's going to give you a ballpark threshold as well. Uh, Now, if you want a really precise threshold, one that you can perhaps compare uh, this month to next month after you change your training or six months from now after you do a whole bunch of different types of training, uh, then you want to do a ramp. And you want to do either something on Zwift or Trainer Road or, you know, one of these, uh, you know, formal ramps where they do really nice incremental increases on a bike or some sort of ramp on a treadmill. Uh, yes, you could do three-minute stages where, you know, you do three minutes at whatever speed and then on the treadmill and then you notch it up and for another three minutes and, and, and as long as you get kind of a linear rise in heart rate, you know your VO2 is going up in a linear fashion because heart rate and VO2 have a very strong relationship. What you don't want to necessarily see, although you'll get a result on alpha-1, but it may not be as precise, is where you get a heart rate goes up and then it's steady state for a while and then it goes up again and then it plateaus for a while. Those are those long um, ramps, or I should say long constant intervals where you do, let's say eight or 10 minutes at a certain power or a certain speed. Now, where that comes in handy is if you wanted to do it live and you had Fat Maxer or you had to do Alpha HRV for Garmin right in front of you. And you said, okay, I want to know when my threshold is right in 20 minutes. You could do it. You would do your five, six minute constant power, constant velocity uh, intervals, and you see about where alpha one drops below 7.75. That'll give you a ballpark. But again, if you want that precise 203 watts versus 210 watt type of precision, at least for comparative purposes, you need a ramp. So so if your uh, heart rate uh, stabilizes very quickly, maybe even three-minute ramps might be too long and you really should go for that sort of incremental type test where where your power or speed goes up every 30 seconds or every minute as much. Yes. Uh, most people, though, on the three-minute stages will look very linear. So what, what, yeah. three minutes is, is, is fine. It's where you five minutes, six minutes is where you start to get those plateaus. Yeah, well, I, I can tell that. Yeah, I, I have several athletes that would not look linear for three ah, minutes, okay. and so so they, they would stabilize in that time. That, that's why I'm curious about that. Um, you mentioned Fat Maxer and uh, Gar. What was the name? Garmin's Alpha, Alpha HRV. Alpha HRV. Yeah, can can you talk a little bit about these tools? And are there any other tools uh, that we should be aware of when it comes to analyzing this data? Yes, and. Uh, before I, I go over the tools for the data analysis, I'm, I'm going to do the second part of your question. Right. Okay. Yeah. And that has to do with, you know, we, we have the same amount of data coming from our heart rate monitor. So you have your polar H10 and you're getting your RR intervals and your, your incremental heart rate variability. And what do you do with that? And what, what the guys who publish the data do, is they use a program called Kubios. And Kubios 
is a phenomenal piece of software that is pretty much the gold standard. Um, but what happens is they, uh, Kubios needs to what's called pre-process the data. And again, this gets into a little bit of mathematics and a little bit of, of, of biophysics. There happen to be what's called stationaries, which are slow um, uh, uh, correlations in, in the heart rate, but they're not part of heart rate variability. And they need to be taken out. And there are various, let's use the word filters, to filter out these kind of ex extraneous variations of, of heart rate uh, variability that are not really heart rate variability. So Kubios uses a certain protocol. And if you don't use the same protocol or you haven't been validated to equal that protocol, then we're comparing apples and oranges. So let's say you, have a, you make your own software to measure alpha one and you get results. I'm not saying your results are wrong, but I'm saying that for, for them to have any chance of reproducing our data, you're going to have to agree with Kubios because that's how we did it. We didn't use your software to come up with our 0.75. We used Kubios. The guys from Spain who just put out that, that new paper, I'm sure they used Kubios. The, the, other, the other paper I talked about they used it too. So, so everyone's using the gold standard in the literature, and we're all getting about the same results. Now, uh, Fatmaxer, when Fatmaxer first came out, Fatmaxer is an app for Android that spits out Alpha One. It also records artifacts as ECG tracings, which is great for a guy like me who's a physician. So if somebody has a lot of artifacts, I can see if they have problems with atrial fibrillation, you know, VPCs, bad beats. Uh, so Fatmaxer, when first uh, came out, did not use the right, what you call the trending method. And the results were not very precise, not in, in agreement to Kubios. The developer was very, very agreeable to my suggestions, went back to square one, redid the software, and lo and behold, we have good agreement. Same thing with Runalyze, same thing with uh, AI Endurance, which are both web-based apps. Uh, they did not use the Kubios method originally and got totally different results. But they're now, all those three apps are in line with Kubios. Hmm. Now, the Garmin, now this is not designed or built by Garmin. This just runs on Garmin devices. Uh, a couple of, of very clever guys, all right? I have a lot of respect for these guys because you got to, you know, to do this in a watch, on a Garmin watch, is like, is like you know, uh, you got a blindfold on and you're navigating a maze. I mean, that's essentially you're, you're, you're handicapping yourself with processing power, memory constraints, all these different things, the different libraries you can use. Yet they, they designed an app to calculate alpha one. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been tuning these detrending methods, these pre-processing methods to align with Kubios. And I just did a test this morning. That's why I was kind of excited when I, I, we first came on the air here. Uh, and I got very nice results. It, it agreed very, very good, good agreement with Kubios. So we're, we're just about there. Um, now, not all apps have that good agreement. 
And the, it's very funny about uh, the agreement and the pre-processing. Some folks have more or less of these stationaries than others. I have a lot of stationaries. So I'm, I'm a good uh, guinea pig to test the apps on. So certain apps like HRV Logger just don't work for me. I, I can't get low enough. Uh, it, does, it doesn't pick up my stationaries well. Uh, but again, FatMax or AI Endurance, um, Run Alive and the new HRV of the, the app for Garmin seem to do w- very well, at least in, in my hands. Mm, yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense to me that, of, of course, you need to to be able to use a tool like this. You you need to you need to have the same or at least a very similar protocol to what was what it was originally validated on. I, I used to do to work with uh, magnetic resonance technology and and even did some publications in that field. And every single parameter in your imaging sequence needs to be in the publication, of course, so that others can reproduce it. And but whereas in in these publications we're talking about here when you're validating something like alpha one it's enough to just say that we use the cubios software but then of course that's still it's it's a black box for other developers that want to so they just the only thing they can do is uh, just try to as much as possible emulate that so it's it's tricky uh, uh to to be to be developing applications there when when you don't have to and i don't know if it's you know different legal requirements in the medical field and that's why all the sequences had to be completely disclosed in in the magnetic resonance field but but yeah it's it's uh, anyway i see your i i think that it's the, the what i'm trying to say here that it's really important to be aware of it, that the fact that these things are validated using a specific program uh it doesn't make it limited in scope it's just how things work and then and then it's up to if somebody wants to validate it using another program then they have to go out go out and do that Correct. And it's not that one is right and one is wrong. Yeah. It's what was used before. And uh, the Kubios team has published their algorithms. Okay. They're out yeah. there. Yeah. So, uh, and, and a FatMaxer is on GitHub. Yeah. So it's, okay. it's open source. So you could see what he did. I mean, uh, so it's out there. It's not, it's not, again, I'm, I'm not a, a software developer, but apparently it's not impossible to do. So again, already other people have done it. Yeah. Um, but again, it's the same thing. If you don't have an accurate power meter on your bike, um, you, you're not going to be able to train right either. So um, you know, just just getting things calibrated to the way they were in in publication data is very important. So that that's kind of a, what I'll, I'll leave that with. Yeah. No. Exactly. Um, all right. So so then. Let's see here where, where, we, where we go next. So one, one question I have going back to the evidence we had, you mentioned we have four plus one coming out, validation studies at this point. And you mentioned that you think that it's it's a pretty strong level of evidence. Uh, we have cycling, we have running, we have elite athletes, we are amateur athletes. We have uh, more of a, uh, an, a disease population. Uh, and uh, No, more- no, no, it was people with heart failure people and heart coronary failure. disease. Okay. Okay, got it. What what else is there anything else is there anything that is lacking or anything that we need more of in terms of supporting evidence just quantity or different scopes? Yeah. Uh we need female data. And we're getting female data. We I I can't really say much about it, but we have submitted 
to a, a journal, a, a good manuscript. I, I am part of the team. I was not the first author. Uh, someone else did it, but I was, I'm privy to the results. And it's going to be very interesting. Um, but it was on a, a large group of women. Um, and uh, that, that, that is needed because there's really very little in females. Um, you know, with the elite athletes, it's nice to see that. Um, I made the argument in, in, the, in our article that there was no guarantee it would work in, in, in the elite athlete as far as the 0.75 because they have a, a lot of vagal tone. And part of the way the index works it's about vagal balance, about parasympathetic and sympathetic uh, balance and withdrawal of the sympathetic, uh, of a parasympathetic system, overdrive of the sympathetic. And, you know, af elite athletes are going to have a lot of vagal balance, very low resting heart rates. And there was no guarantee it would work, but apparently it does. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then one more question on the research side of things and then we can go back into more practical and applied sides uh what sort of um levels of tolerance or error do you see in these measurements are we talking about like if you measure in watts for example are we talking that you're accurate to within plus minus five watts or 20 watts what, what, what's the that that is a really difficult question to answer it depends on the quality of the data it depends on what you're comparing to. For instance, if if you look at uh, studies, uh, we, we've put this in pretty much every one of our articles, and I, I like it. It's one by Polaris, um, where he they th their team looked at the VT1, the ventilatory first threshold, versus, let's say, the first lactate threshold. And they got a regression and, and an error that is about what we see with, with our alpha-1 versus the VT-1 or alpha-1 versus the LT-1. So none of these things are 100%. If you, again, as I mentioned earlier in the talk, um, lack, first lactate threshold, there are many ways of deriving that, and they're all different. Even the first ventilatory threshold, if you had one of the foremost groups in the world read that gas exchange versus uh, some, some you know, guy in a small town who's using the machine to spit out the number because there are algorithms in the machine to spit out the gas exchange thresholds, they could be totally, totally different. So it all depends on what you're comparing to. In our runner's study, we were very, very close within a couple of beats per minute as far as the first threshold. But again, with the cardiac disease uh, side of things or or the, uh, I think we were within probably 10 watts um, uh, with the uh, with the elite triathletes, I'm not sure what this other study is going to be as far as how many watts off. But again, there's going to be individual variations. And in fact, if I do the alpha one test on myself five times, I'm going to get five different numbers. Yeah, they'll all cluster around a certain area. But you know, the the the, the again the same with the FTP. You go out and you do your best 20 minute time. You may, you may, you're going to have a variation on that as well. So um, I wouldn't get too hung up. Uh, am, I, am I five watts above or, or five watts below? Uh, but again, they are going to give you useful information. Yeah, uh, no, that makes sense. 
So, so let's discuss some more practical aspects. We already talked a bit about the different softwares, and we might get into that a bit more. But first, um, you obviously need a heart rate monitor that is capable of measuring certain features. Not all heart rate monitors are fit for purpose here. Can you talk about, about that, what you need in terms of the heart rate monitor? Yeah, I'll, I'll cut right to the chase on that. Uh, I would recommend, again, I'm not affiliated or, or paid by or supported by, uh, but I, I would get a Polar H10 or maybe an H9. Um, uh, several reasons. One, it has two Bluetooth channels. You always want to record Bluetooth. Uh, and plus, um, I'm not sure if you realize this, uh, has a limited bandwidth. And if you have a heart rate above about 140, you're going to get a lot of missed beat artifact. Hmm. And we saw this early on when we started playing with this. So you must use Bluetooth if you want a nice, accurate artifact-free tracing. So what I usually use is a Polar H10. I'm One channel is going to Fatmaxer. One channel is going to my Garmin watch. Um, now that I'm using the, um, uh, I've been testing the Alpha HRV, that new app for Garmin, do you have a Garmin device, by the way? I have a Garmin watch and a Garmin by computer, yeah. And and okay. Polar Polar Heart Rate Monitor, but the OH10 actually, so it's not fit for purpose. So I haven't tried any of this personally yet. Okay. Uh, yeah, so you, you should get an H10. But anyway, with with, with uh, the, the new app for Garmin, it has a, a little bit of a limitation in that it must get a Bluetooth channel. Well, okay, if you have Bluetooth going to your watch, you can't have Bluetooth going to the Garmin app for Alpha One. So um, you either have to wear two heart rate monitors, which you guys don't want to do, or what, what somebody's going to get Ant Plus. So uh, not that I want to confuse the issue out there, but if you are looking at Alpha One, try to use the Bluetooth transmission for that. Okay, so now I'm not following. Because uh, to your, can you transmit from your from your polar heart rate monitor to the Garmin watch via Bluetooth? Because I, or is it, is it only old Garmin's that are only Ant Plus? No. Uh, okay. Garmin devices default for Ant Plus. Yeah. So if you, you know, uh, pair your watch or your cycle computer to your H10, it'll immediately pick up the Ant. What you have to do at that point is it'll say, uh, do you accept? You don't accept. You reject that. And then it'll say, look for Bluetooth. And that's when okay. you want to look for Bluetooth. Now, if you're using that app, uh, then you would actually pair your watch to Ant Plus and let the app take Bluetooth. Okay. and But the app is still part of your Garmin watch. It's one. Of, no, it is. No. It is part of the Garmin watch, but it's sucking in the heart rate variability separately. Okay, yeah, but you operate it on the watch. Yes, it operates on the watch as its own little, you know, kind of self-contained program. Yeah. It doesn't take what you paired the, the watch with as far as heart rate variability. That's the important thing. Yeah, and I, I, think, I think this also requires a fairly new Garmin watch because I think that the older ones don't have any Bluetooth capability uh, I may be mistaken there, but no. I mean, I um, I, I had an old Fenix Five, worked fine. 
Uh, I had a Fenix Six equivalent worked fine. I have an Epix Two now. It's it's like a charm. It's it's what phenomenal. About, what about the Forerunner series? Are you aware of that? Uh, the, the ninth, the ninth, what uh, thirty-five is equivalent yeah. is equivalent to the Fenix Five. Okay. That should work. Yep. Okay. And the nine forty-five is like the Fenix Six. That should work. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. So, but I'm glad that you mentioned a specific a specific heart rate uh, heart rate monitor that that is the the best in class. Uh, that's that's really nice. And and then yeah. So let's discuss these different software options: the the Garmin, uh, the the Alpha HRV, the Fatmaxer mobile app, and then you mentioned Runalyze, and there was one other web based app which was AI Endurance. AI Endurance. Um, right. What, do you have any specific recommendations among among these, or is it up to just personal preference? I would say personal preference. They're all using the same the trending, um, except the 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 Garmin the the Alpha HRV uh, for the watch. That's going to be even though I think it's going to end up close. It's it's not going to be as good as a Fatmax or on an Android device. It's not going to be as good as Runalyze. Or AI endurance, but it's going to be close. It's going to be close. Hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I w- I, I, all those are are fine to use. I've, I use yeah. them all interchangeably, and I validated them all. Yeah, and and uh, are any of those free, or are they all? What what is the pricing for for them? If you know, they are all currently free. I don't know if the Garmin app, the Alpha HRV, is eventually going to be a, a payment or not, but Fatmaxer free and again it's it's open source uh, ai endurance um and runalyze i i i i think are free okay great um so then in terms of application in training we already talked about using the the ramp ramp test protocol what what, what would you use just as a as an athlete yourself do, would you simply treat it as any test in the past you might have done you know uh, going to the lab to do a to assess your VT one or your LT one, and then you go back there a few months later to see if your training was beneficial and if it worked, and and where maybe reset your zones based on that. Is that the same way you would do it now? You would every couple of months or so you would you would just do that specific test protocol and see where you are and reset your zones, and then just go out and train, or do you use it more often than that in day to day training as well? That's where things stood about a year ago. That that's where we thought, uh, you know, it's it's one and only use would be is to get thresholds. But since that time, we also published a very interesting study of what the Alpha One looks like before and after, let's say, an ultra marathon, when you're running at a very slow speed before versus running at the same slow speed after, and we found a huge suppression of Alpha One after a six-hour trail run, and and this opens up the whole. A can of worms for using this to uh, for for daily readiness to train and and durability. Durability is kind of a fancy word for measuring fatigue as as you're going along. For instance, you know you you um, whatever your first threshold is, you plug that in and you go let's say ten watts below it, and you know for forty five minutes, sixty minutes, you're watching your alpha one real time and it's it's nice and steady. And then after 60 minutes, 75 minutes, same pace, uh, oh, it's starting to drop and it's becoming more suppressed, more suppressed. That's telling you you're getting some autonomic nervous system fatigue, which is a sign of decreased durability. 
So that's one way to look at that is at, at are you getting more resistant to that alpha one drop? Instead of, I, I used to drop after 20 minutes. Now I can, I can now do 45 minutes before I get the drop. So I'm getting better durability. The other thing is the readiness to train phenomenon. And this is where I use it. Um, every time, every day that I, I, I bike, um, remember I'm an older fellow, I'm, I'm 65 and I do not have the recovery I had hell when I was 62, uh, let alone when I was 35 or 40. So, um, I've noticed that it's it's been very very helpful for me to know if I'm tired. Sometimes I feel great, but uh, in the warm up, my alpha one is already dropping pretty low when it should not have dropped low because I'm just warming up. And that's again a very key thing as far as am I ready to train today? Do I have um, fatigue? Do I have uh, I have functional overtraining risk by pushing it too hard? Day after day after day, again, you know, when you're young and you're invincible, you're a lot more resistant to that. Uh, but again, even the young guys are going to get functional overreaching if they hit it too hard too often. And that's where I think the, the biggest potential in looking at real-time alpha-1 comes in is to know if you're ready to do intervals that day or ready to hit it hard that day. And and this is based on uh, studies, for example, in the ultra runners, where you basically measured before when they were fresh, and you measured after. And I think you compared to a control group that just went about their daily activities without right. any specific training to to see kind of or a similar time period or, or the course of the day what happened. Is that is that what you did? Yes, it's a, that's exactly what I did. And um, uh, and and the interesting thing, if you looked at the alpha one, remember it's dimensionless. So again, we don't need calibration here. The alpha one after the ultra marathon was well below 0.5. It was in that really high intensity domain, well above the FTP type of value that you'd see the alpha one. Uh, yet they were running below the first ventilatory threshold, a very, very easy pace. The other interesting thing that we saw and other people have seen is there was no heart rate drift noted. So their heart rates before and after the six hours and their their VO2, their oxygen use on the treadmill at that speed we were using, the same slow speed, were the same. The only thing that really changed was the alpha one. So again, uh, yes, heart rate drift is one parameter that's very, very complicated. And it turns out that after, let's say, five, six hours of, of exercise, heart rate drift can actually be reversed. And instead of you drifting up, you can actually see a, a negative drift. Um, but again, uh, th these are really complicated phenomenon. But uh, uh, the bottom line here is I think there's going to be a lot of use of alpha-1 in, in diagnosing fatigue and in readiness to train. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting and, and definitely one to... Uh, one where I'm in, intrigued to see what what future uh, studies will show in, in addition to the uh, the initial evidence that we, we already have. Um, one other quest, practical question is around the different modalities, for example, running versus cycling. That's one thing that I've heard just uh, on the internet that some people find that, yeah, it works great, great for cycling, but doesn't really work for running. Yes. People struggle with that. With, I guess the signal isn't as good. Do you have any tips for that? 
Oh, yes. Uh, well, a couple of things. There is um, technically running um, versus cycling shouldn't be different. But there is some sort of artifact, some sort of technical glitch that some people see that gives what I call the low A1 while running syndrome, where somebody is, uh, uh, they start with a walk and then they start jogging. And even before their heart rate gets up, the A1 drops and it drops very, very low. Um, it may have to do with literally the mechanical bounce up and down. I've written several posts on this. Uh, I'm not really sure. I can't give you a reason why. But um, some, some people clearly see that the minute they start bouncing up and down, their, their A1 drops. Remember, the A1 is looking for patterns. And if some sort of vibration or change in the way the heart is kind of positioned in the chest from the bounce up and down uh, interferes in recognition of the pattern, the A1 is going to drop. What I've recommended for people who have that type of problem, you're not going to beat it by running. There's, there's no way around it. Uh, however, um, like walking up a very steep incline, very steep, or a stair stepper, very steep will work because you're not bouncing. We're just doing the cycling test and translating that heart rate to your running heart rate will give you an approximation. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. If you're if you're fairly evenly matched across cycling and running, then generally speaking, I I see that your equivalent heart rates will be five to ten beats per minute higher. Five, five on average, I would say, for running compared to cycling in in well trained athletes. Anyway, uh, when when they're quite quite evenly matched, just because there's maybe slightly more muscle mass involved in running than cycling. Um, but yeah, those, those are good tips as well with the uh, with the incline or the stair stepper. That that that, that should work fine. Um, yeah, and other than that, we already I was going to ask about what if yeah it just generally doesn't match with your uh, with your results that you get in a in a lab test. But but I think we kind of covered that already with just using the the, the reason that you you must use specific processing methods, which is now implemented in in certain apps. So so that uh, yeah, I will add one, one thing to that if if you don't mind. I, yeah. uh, if you have a lot of artifact, artifact will bias the A one up. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, um, you're doing a run or you're doing a bike and towards the, when you're really, really, you know, hitting it hard and you're moving all over the place, um, the, the heart rate will show pretty accurately. But you'll be missing a lot of RR intervals in there just from all the noise and the, the motor, motor uh, activity. And if you, if that's why it's really important to look at the artifacts. And if they're above 3%, 4%, uh, 5% tops, you can't trust that data. Mm. So again, if you have nice and clean data where your artifacts are 2% or below, then, then it's going to be a pretty predictive in most individuals. But one of the more common reasons that I see people have trouble interpreting their results is there was a lot of artifact in there that they didn't mm. really appreciate. And, and do these apps report how much artifacts you have, or do you need to do that in Cubios? Uh, some some of them report, um, uh, but yes, Fat Maxer will report uh, per window per measurement 
what your what the artifact correction was. Um, and Kubios, of course, will. Um, AI Endurance, I believe, will. And Runalyze will, too. So all of those apps will. Uh, HRV Logger will do that as well. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. So I think, is, is there anything we've missed i'm going to ask you to do some uh, to do a summary at the end but but before that is there anything else that you think we sh- we should discuss that we haven't touched on so far yeah um i'm i'm looking at my cheat sheet here um yeah one thing we did we uh, we probably talked about but i want to emphasize when you're doing thresholds and you want to accurately measure your threshold make sure you're fresh all right mm-hmm. um because if, remember, if you're not fresh, you're going to get fatigue effects. Now, that's a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing in that you, if you had an accurate threshold beforehand, it's going to tell you you're not ready to train and you're tired and, and you better back off. On the other hand, if you're going to base your training on a fatigued value, that's a mistake because that value is going to be lower than it should be. So make sure, again, if this is like your first introduction, that either, you know, you took a couple of days off or, you know, you, 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 yeah, I, I feel really good and my numbers have been great. Uh, and then I still took a day off and that, then do a threshold. But don't do a threshold for the first time when you're tired. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Anything else that we missed? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. One, one thing I will say is if you have users who are, let's say, cross-country skiers or they're in you know, various uh, sports that are atypical rowing, things like that, uh, we have some anecdotal data on that, that it seems to work. Um, but if, if those individuals you know, had questions, they, they could always contact me on Twitter or something like that, and I'd be, able to, I, I'd be happy to help them out. Mm. Great, yeah, yeah. We do have a fair number of non-triathletes listening, so so you might well get get a couple of questions from 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 that uh, part of the audience. Uh, but uh, other than that, let's sum up. So so if you can just uh, give one to three practical take-home messages for the listeners about DFA Alpha One and how to use that, uh, what what would that be? Okay, first I would I would use the proper. Um, uh, measuring equipment and the proper software to get the value. Proper measuring equipment would be a Polar H10. Uh, proper software would be AI Endurance, Runalyze, Fatmaxer, maybe Alpha HRV for Garmin. Although that I feel is going to be kind of more our, our real time looking at the watch um, uh, capability. Uh, but if, if I wanted an accurate threshold, I would use those other pieces of software because yeah. they're going to be closest to Kubios for now. Uh, yeah. uh, second, um, again, if you're if you're fresh and 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 in great shape for your test, good. But if you're tired, don't do it. Uh, the other thing that I, I don't think gets enough attention, as I discussed, is using the A1 during warm up as a guide if you should train hard or not that day. And we already have a study on that. That's in the manuscript uh, preparation stage uh, that looks very promising. Uh, so I think you're going to see more and more about that as time goes on. So, yeah, so that that would be all, almost the equivalent of what um, 
a lot of athletes are doing not well a lot is maybe the wrong term but certain some athletes are just assessing their lactate after warm-up and seeing seeing where it is or or let's say after the first interval of a workout to adjust the intensity up or down depending on where their lactate values are for the day so equivalently you can you can kind of do that with with alpha one uh in uh instead i i um that, that yes, that that that's a potential. The other one I would compare most directly is looking at resting heart rate variability, which is fairly popular. Um, and yes, there are a lot of apps for that. Um, uh, yeah, that's looking at the autonomic nervous system status. And if the autonomic system is looking like it's stressed and tired, you don't want to you know add insult to injury. Uh, so it's not a good day to train hard. Um, a lot of people either don't have time. Or, or, you know, whatever, they're too busy in the morning. Um, I personally have never had a lot of variability in my resting. So I, it, it just it never worked for me. And, but the mm-hmm. A1 during the warm-up works for me really, really well. And that's one of the things we're looking at and we'll look, look at more in the future. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for correcting me on that because yeah, it, it makes sense that obviously this is still uh, a measure taken from the autonomic nervous system. So it would be more equivalent to resting HRV than to uh, lactate, which is a metabolic marker. So even though they are both used in in the, con- in, the in, in a lot of what we've talked about here today in the same context of, of establishing a, a threshold, a certain threshold for intensity, but but still using very different methods if so yeah that, that's a good good correction that you made there i will throw one thing in about practicality of lactate um you know i'm in florida in the u.s where it's hot and humid most of the time and you can't do lactate outside the minute you open that bottle or open that strip it just kind of pollutes the strip from from you know 99 relative humidity or whatever so hmm. uh, yeah i mean i guess you could do it inside you know, when you're on a, like a trainer or something like that, as far as a field test, no can do. Um, but again, alpha one yeah. is something that while you're outside, you know, doing your warm up, you can easily do under any circumstance. Mm. Yeah, good point. All right. So let's move into the rapid fire questions. So take just one sentence to answer each of these. And the first one is what's your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports? Yeah, I, I, I remember you gave me these questions and it, it, uh, as far as rapid fire, I had to think about that. And I don't have any particular book, but the resource, uh, the ultimate resource, I think, is PubMed, uh, Medline, uh, National Library of Medicine uh, in the U.S. And that has a, pretty much everything that you'd want, either in abstract form or most of the time things are either on ResearchGate or, again, so you could usually get the download even if it's behind a paywall somewhere. Uh, so again, PubMed would be my my resource. Yeah, and well, I that's that's great, and I love ResearchGate, and and thank you for having all of your papers up there free for download. <laughs> that that really helped me in preparing this episode. Uh, secondly, what's an important habit that you've benefited from athletically, professionally, or personally? Uh, yeah, okay, um, that's another one I had to think about a little bit. And this gets back to my medical background. We were taught in my day in medicine not to believe anybody. So we were always questioning, uh, always not believing the data, always being critical. And although, uh, you know, some, I guess, could criticize us that, uh, you know, we haven't found any uh, uh, anti 
the the you know the opposite as far as validation um and you know maybe it's it it is not the case it's not proven I, I believe me when i go through this we look at things very very critically uh so again my one of my uh thought processes is always to be critical of the data right yeah it's uh kind of kill your darlings uh whole uh, concept assume it's yeah. wrong uh, you know before yeah. it's right and finally who's somebody you look up to or that has inspired you I, I, and I was thinking about that. And, um, you know, if, if you look at different fields, there's so much subspecialization these days in, in medicine, in sports science, um, in engineering, in computer science. Um, you know, a person you'd look up into one field would be a nobody in another. So I, I thought, you know, who really, you know, did it all? And I thought back, Leonardo da Vinci has to be someone that I would think. Did it all. I mean, from from artistry to engineering, mechanics. Um, again, true Renaissance person. A little, you know, it had had his finger in everything. Uh, so that would be my answer. Yeah, that's a great one. And uh, Bruce, where can people follow you? You mentioned Twitter already, uh, and, and 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 I mentioned ResearchGate. So those are two great places, and we'll put them in the show notes. Is there any other uh, good place to follow you? Um, I have a blog called MuscleOxygenTraining.com. Uh, way I, I labeled it as such in the days when I started the blog uh, because uh, I was fooling around with a muscle oxygen sensor, um, kind of doing esoteric things with that. So that's my blog, and Twitter is BJRMD. And um, again, if anyone has any questions, feel free. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bruce. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and uh, looking forward to, to the, the research to yet to come out from you and, and your team. Thanks for having me on. I hope that you enjoyed that episode. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com with a bunch of links, uh, of course, to Bruce's profiles on Twitter and ResearchGate and a bunch of the papers that he and his colleagues have done on using DFA Alpha 1, uh, both for assessing the aerobic threshold, but also for things like assessing fatigue, as we also talked about. Also related to this episode, if you want to learn more about heart rate variability, definitely go back just a few episodes to episode number 325 and listen to the interview that I did with Dr. Marco Altini on heart rate variability. If you want to improve your triathlon performance and want help to achieve your goals, then consider working with a scientific triathlon coach or a training plan. Whether you're just getting into triathlon, trying to qualify for a world championship event, or even want to race professionally, we have experience in all of those scenarios and would love to discuss further around it to see if we can help you on your triathlon journey. Find out more and contact us, contact us on scientifictriathlon.com and we can discuss your specific goals and needs and see what might be best for you. Next Monday on the podcast, I interview Dr. Mark Burnley. And somewhat related to this episode, we will talk about the first lactate threshold or the first ventilatory threshold, the aerobic threshold, uh, but we will tackle it from a different angle. We'll talk a lot about uh, the traditional methods of vent gas exchange testing and lactate testing to assess it. Uh, so that's the main topic that we talk about with Mark. And uh, Mark will actually be back in episode number 331 as well. It's a two-part interview that I'm doing with him. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration, that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com. Use their free online sweat test and quick carb calculator to understand your fluid, electrolyte, and carbohydrate needs and individualize your plan. Also, book a free video consultation with a team to refine your strategy. 
Use the code TTS22 at checkout for 15% off your first order of fueling and hydration products. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and exceptional sunglasses and prescription glasses for everything from day-to-day wear to extreme action sports. Use the promo code that you can get on roka.com for slash TTS to get 20% off your entire Roka order. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving craft long.